And welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast after what has been a difficult week for the Irish women's team, a difficult week for the Rainbow Cup and the idea that was. Um, so to say that we're all in good form here, I, I'd say would be probably a bit of a lie. You add in on top of that, my uh, guests uh, to say are Don Lennon as always, Bernard Jackman, Wes Liddy, and delighted to say uh, Lynn Cantwell is with us. But you add into that that Lynn Cantwell got married at the weekend and didn't see fit to invite a single one of us <laughs> to her wedding is absolutely despicable behaviour to be honest and I'm in pretty bad form Lynn because of that What's can you offer us a live reason now that you're on air I'll, like, I'll put it in context that we would no parents or anybody there so maybe maybe they, they would have got trumps ahead of you Q I don't well, know it's me Lynn it's me it's Lee. How, how close are we anyway look listen congratulations um, well done fantastic Thank news and, is, uh, this a, is this a world exclusive is it well, I think me and Fiona Coughlin knew on Saturday, but that was about it. But anyway, yeah, I think more you, didn't announce it. you didn't announce it over the airwaves. <laughs> I tell you, you, like got, you got the dream wedding, Lynn. All well, it took was COVID. It. You didn't have to invite your in-laws. Brilliant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's it. The worst possible clash. Like, what are the chances? Like, there's not many women's fixtures. And then one weekend that I decided to have it, it had the same Six Nations weekend. Like, what's the what's the chances? Anyway. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind, but I rang in on Friday night just to pick her brains on a few rugby matters ahead of the match on Saturday. And she didn't mention so much as the word. And then Fiona sitting there beside me. <laughs> I hear your one got married there. I said, no, fun. Asher, I haven't been talking to her in ages. Just last night, she never said a word anyway. <laughs> Too many things to talk about you. That's right, that's right. Listen, that's the last thing I'm going to say. Um, look, it's been a difficult week. I listened to an interview uh, last night on um, Game On with uh, Kalina Maloney, and she's talking about, I, I guess, the the way the squad have felt, Lynn, over the last few days in um, after what happened on Saturday. And the mood is pretty dour. I think now they've managed to kind of get past it and concentrate on, on the challenges of Italy this weekend. But... You can understand, I suppose, why they were so disappointed by the performance on Saturday. Yeah, definitely. I, I think um, I think this is a really good side, and I think this is not the side that we're looking at for the last couple of years, where I think you know it's questionable the, the standards and their accuracy and their understanding of what they were trying to do and their his cohesion amongst the team. I think this is a good side, and I think this is an emerging side. And um, they will be disappointed with it, but I think it's the reality um, in line with where they're at, even though they're better than they were before. But France are excellent. Like, France are excellent, and the countries in the world that are taking women's rugby seriously are really excellent. And I'm enjoying the rugby that they're playing. France were brilliant. England are playing really good rugby, the New Zealand's of this world, etc. So, like, I think it's a reality of where Ireland are at compared to a really good side. Um, could they have done better? Of course they could. Are they the standard that France are at? No, they're not. And um, so the girls are going to be disappointed, and I'm sure they're disappointed on the back of the hype that they got the year, the week before, as well. Um, but look, it's it's just tough, a tough reality for the stage that they're at. Um, but there's lots of positives from from what they're doing as well. Yeah, I think that's you know, if you want to frame it in a positive light, Donald, I think you know, if they're looking over all the last couple of weeks, they can say, okay, they, they put in a decent performance against what we know is not a very good Wales side, but certainly there were a lot of things to be positive about there. And in the context of the French game, uh, if the most positive way you could probably look at it is to say, look, Ireland did make a lot of mistakes there which are fixable, albeit France are a very strong side. But it's the mistakes that are fixable that probably they need to concentrate on to look for improvement. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. And uh, I think, to be fair, even in the Welsh game, a lot of those mistakes were evident. Um, they were outstanding in the opening half. Uh, but when they had a chance to really put Wales away in the second half, there was a lot of basic errors. Um, that you would be concerned about when you came up against uh, the better teams. Certainly, Welsh defensively were nowhere near as organised or structured as, say, England or France would be. Um, but look, I suppose there's been so many obstacles placed in front of the women over the past, well, you could say since, the, since women's rugby started in some degree, but even in the last 12 months because of COVID. Um, I mean, to put it into context, if we ask the men to go out and play an international game where they hadn't played when they'd won match, I think, in 13 months would be almost impossible. So, I mean, from that perspective, I was surprised at the quality of rugby they delivered against Wales, given that they hadn't played for so long. Uh, I think, unfortunately, expectation levels, uh, a lot of people would have been tuning into that game and expectation levels kind of went through the roof. Um, the positive <clears throat> was... Obviously, they had the platform to themselves in terms of there was no other games on. Uh, I think we saw from a media perspective the benefit of having the Six Nations on at a different time to the men's and the under-20s. They had the platform to themselves, and it was brilliant. 
and even for the likes of myself, I was more exposed to, um, you know, different women within the squad. You got to know more about their backgrounds and, you know, the sacrifices and the commitment that they had made. Um, and all, so all that was brilliant. I think there must have been, though, an element within the, the women's group, people like Lynn and, and Fiona and those who know the game well, that because of the hype, there was always going to be a, 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 a strong possibility that they weren't going to match that hype, given just how good France are. And uh, <clears throat> I felt right from the start of the game, even though Ireland got a couple of free kicks in the opening scrums, they were a bit dubious. They looked under pressure in the set piece. Uh, defensively, there was, there was a, a number of errors there. Uh, and when you look at a side of the quality of France, then it was always likely that they were going to be exposed. But look, that's, that's where you are. Uh, and I think people really need to keep in context Third place in this Six Nations was it would be a really good result for this women's team. Um, plus, uh, as I say, I, I started looking at them over the years. I thought there were elements of their games that have vastly improved. Their skill levels uh, seem to be up at a different level. Uh, but I think that all that has to be tempered by the reality that there is a distance to travel to match the top two or three in the world. Uh, but also... Um, there are so many changes that need to be made uh, at the grassroots and at the fundamental level. It doesn't matter if you bring Graham Henry or Steve Hansen in to take over women's rugby in Ireland. Things aren't going to change overnight. You've got to address the issues at fundamental. You know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think only three of the girls have been playing rugby since they were underage. And that has to... I go back to my own time playing over the years. Um, I saw loads of fellas come in with a Gaelic football background for argument's sake at 20, 21, 22 years of age coming in to join Carcan or whatever and even though they're great athletes you can see rugby is a very technical game and there is a huge advantage be it at boys, girls, men, women if you haven't played the game from 8, 9 and 10 uh, comparing it to even a very good athlete from basketball or uh, women's Gaelic football or whatever there's a huge learning process and that is a challenge. And that is why I think if you want to close the gap between England and France, you have to try and introduce uh, girls to the game at a younger age. This, uh, this argument has uh, been used, uh, Bernard, as well. Just to pick up on what Donald just said there, we, the world is waiting for America to explode into the 15s game and be a powerhouse because they have all these athletes that don't quite make it for college level coming out of high school and they are stronger, faster, fitter than all of the other athletes, I guess, combined in rugby playing nations. So it's only a matter of time before they get their act together. It's not that simple, really, to transfer those skills to the game of rugby union, right? Otherwise, everyone would do it. Yeah, I, I think I think it can be done, but it should be, you know, the icing on the cake. It shouldn't be all the ingredients. And, and in fairness, if you listen to a lot of what's been said over the last three or four years, from what I can see, or a lot of the prioritisation, around the performance part of the, the women's program, there's been a huge em emphasis on sevens, you know, and, and we actually had our sevens players available against France, whereas normally we, against, against France, yeah, normally we mightn't have. So our depth is actually theoretically worse than uh, it, it looked at the weekend. And if, you know, I know there's been a huge focus and there has been some success in terms of getting women from other sports into the sevens program, and onto the 15s uh, uh, jersey. But if you look at it, I mean, there's some unbelievable athletes not playing rugby in the men's in, in men's sport in Ireland that they haven't gone after them and said, "Look, at you know, uh, we can make you a sevens player in an international or professional for a province." Why? Because the training age is very difficult to catch up. The reason they can't do it is because there's enough men in this country uh, who played rugby since seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So when the time they're twenty, even if they might lack a little bit of athleticism they have the training age so i and i think i don't see an issue with trying to get women from other sports to play sevens to play 15s but it shouldn't be 99 percent of your of your project and and i think you know there's an article in today's irish times gavin kumiski you know and he, he asked adam griggs who's the professional head coach of the women's team who's in charge of the domestic game. And he didn't know who it was. And I, and I said this Monday night that I don't know who it is. I know now because I looked into it. It's Colin McEntee. But the reality is, you know, we need to get that right. And I'm sure there's certain clubs that are really doing great things absolutely across the country. But as a, as a, as a country as a whole, I don't think um, there's been enough done to make sure that in five years' time, 10 years' time, 
the majority of our team have a high training age. The majority of our team have grown up playing rugby at 15s. And if we need to go and bring in a, you know, a, a basketballer to play second row or a winger from, from athletics, um, the day that's okay as well. I mean, it's inclusive, but it's not all our eggs are in that basket because no one else, if, 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 if sevens was the key to success, Fiji would have three or four world cups, you know, yeah. in 15. So, but it suits the narrative, I think of, 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 of what, I don't know, I don't know what's narrative suits, but it seems to be in the priority to go down the sevens route with women's rugby and the 15s was left. Even if you look at the, the action points, uh, you know, and the KPIs, they're very sevens driven. Um, so yeah, I think that's maybe a, a strategical error we made that hopefully doesn't cost us long term. Wes, the Ireland women's head coach, not knowing who is in charge of the domestic game in this country, is absolutely dumbfounding to me. I think it's incredible, really. Um, I imagine there'll be a couple of raps on the knuckles over that one over the next couple of days. Incredible. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, like, it's like Andy Farrell not knowing who's in charge of one of the provincial academies in the men's game, really. It's, it's, but it wouldn't be acceptable. Like, I mean, be can you worse. imagine in the men's game that that the head coach of the Irish men's team was asked who is in charge of developing the game in this country, and he's saying, "I haven't a clue." I th- I think like obviously that's shocking, but I I think the fact that that's where the conversation goes is kind of part of the problem. It, maybe is the wrong way to put it, but it's very difficult to talk about this accurately because. Like the first thing you look at is is the game, obviously, and you know, as, as John Giles used to love to say, you take each game on its merits. And the bottom line is they were beaten by forty points, so you know that's not a, a glowing review that's going to come a lot of times. Regardless of, I would take Lynn and Donald's point about very obvious improvements in certain areas, but equally, you can't just bag them for being well beaten because the context is, you know, the different levels of. It's been put out there as different levels of professionalism, but I think that's probably inaccurate from, from what I've heard. It's it more is. probably the training age, as Bernard said. But, you know, then, then the conversation keeps coming back to structures. Um, so it, it's very difficult to address. And, and, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, the senior team being contracted and... Obviously, if there's a if there's a, a group of 15, 20, 25, 30 contracted, that will improve them to some degree in the short, medium term. But the notion that you have a, a, a ring-fenced, contracted senior professional squad and no fit-for-purpose feeder systems beneath it is, is ludicrous. No, no sporting organization in the world has flourished by that kind of short-term fix. So... I mean, it seems pretty obvious that, that the underage pathways are, are key. And, and look, I'm a massive fan of crossover athletes, and I think the men's game should be utilising it a lot more. But Bernard's 100% right. You don't take decision makers from that background. You take one or two X-factor players that can give you something else that you struggle to produce yourself. But it's a bit of a Pandora's box trying to unpack it all. So yeah. maybe for purpose of this discussion... We should pick one aspect and go down that route. Well, okay. Well, just on that, I'm going to come back to Lynn in just a second. But Donald, I, I put it to you, Donald, that there are more people in Ireland who don't know the name of the South African Women's Development Leader, Lynn Cantwell, than there are who runs the game currently in this country. And it's it's no irony lost on us, I'm sure, that Lynn is on her way to South Africa to oversee the development of the women's game when someone of her skill set and her insight and her knowledge, we're crying out for here. Is that not the irony of our ironies? <laughs> oh, absolutely. But look, I think, to be fair, uh, I think there's been a bit of lip service play to the women's game for a long time now. I think the RFU jumped on the bandwagon of sevens because it carried the Olympic tag. I mean, it was a brilliant thing. Uh, Olympics, uh, an opportunity to, to, to go to the Olympics as an athlete. Um, I mean, how would that not attract... Um, uh, men or women from from all spheres of sport. Uh, so I think we definitely got sidetracked on that sevens uh, route. Uh, I couldn't agree more. You know, to see people of Lynn's capability leaving the country when there's a it, it's crying out for development in the game here. But look, I think one of the I'm not surprised in the least that to some respects about you know who who was in charge of of the women's game. I mean, I'm involved in the club game. Okay, and one of the issues I think we have in Ireland, I had a parent ask me in terms of our own minis in Khan, 
you know, what's the story with girls? Uh, can they play? And they can play. And we do have a lot of girls play underage, but nothing happens then, let's say, after uh, 10, 11 and 12. So you're not really going to have the type of development that you need, the type of development that you have in England and uh, France, unless there is some buy-in from clubs. And that's a very difficult one. I mean, who's going to train? Who, what facilities are these young girls going to have? Um, if you look at club rugby in Ireland, forget whether it's men's or women, every club has less teams now than they had 25 years ago. I remember any time I used to go to Dublin for work or was up there on courses, I'd always I had a strong affiliation with Lansdowne. I'd go down to Lansdowne, I'd train Tuesday and Thursday. Obviously, I knew a lot of the players, played with them at representative level. It used to always amaze me on a, a Thursday night, they'd put up the team sheets for the matches on Saturday. Jeez, there could be there could be twelve team sheets up on the wall. Yeah. Now at the time in Con, we maybe had we had a senior team, uh, the seconds, and two minor teams, and an under twenty. Five adult teams. Lansdowne had twelve. If you go to any club in Ireland, all those those teams have dwindled. Everybody's down to the bare bones. As a result of that, um, obviously, there's the finance element of running a club. There's the facilities element. How many pitches do you have? So even if even if you wanted to develop women's rugby in the morning and we wanted to have a team, I don't know where we'd fit them. Do you know what I mean? We, we, we come to the weekend, where would we play? We're struggling with our minis, with our youths, with our adults to get enough pitches to play our, uh, our, our men's rugby. So where, so, and I would say that is replicated all over the country. So, um, you know, you have to start somewhere. And, you know, it was so evident just listening to yourself and, and uh, Fiona doing the commentary on Saturday. In the second half of the French game, they seemed to flip a switch. And the quality of the rugby, their running lines, their support lines, their offloading. It was like watching, I saw Toulouse against Munster a couple of weeks ago in the Heineken Cup. It was the same structure and organisation. So those girls have obviously grown up with that over a period of 10 or 12 years. I listened to Bernard on, on, on against the head on Monday night. He had been talking about the big clubs in, in Toulouse and uh, Montpellier, I think he mentioned, and the towns and all that. So it's ingrained in those areas. So like, whereas we're, we're kind of starting from a zero base here, but unless you have a spread of, of clubs that give the women's <coughs> opportunities, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Lynn, but there, are, there seems to be very few clubs for, for adult women to join, you know, it's, it's, is it Black Rock or Old Belvedere? It's UL Bowes. Uh, we had Railway, Highfield. That's about it. Yeah. yeah, we had Highfield. Highfield are, are, are no longer have a, a ladies' team. I think Ballon College have started one. So it's very difficult. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that has to be addressed at the ground roots first before uh, you will have any throughput of, of, of girls who have the skill levels from a young age. What do you think, then? Oh, there's so much in that, isn't there? Um, like just for the record, like I, I really, I, I do always feel uncomfortable being brought into the conversation around um, who should lead Irish women's rugby because you know I, I don't necessarily think that's necessarily me, but um, I see the comparison. I, I think there's lots of things. I think there's like a performance pathway, and then there's domestic rugby, and and we want both. Like if if we're trying to if we're trying to look at like how can the girls that are there perform you need to focus in specifically on them being as best as they possibly can be and what does that look like that doesn't necessarily look like contracting them as such personally I think and I think Bernard we spoke about this like you know, I think France have chosen to have a semi-professional model because it suits them better I'm definitely pro semi-professional model as opposed to contracted model because it's um I, I like the idea and I think it's a transition from amateur professionalism we have to recognize that women's sport doesn't know how to be professional a lot of them don't and we have to kind of guide them in that transition and that kind of speaks back to when the men turned professional back in um mid 90s wasn't it um so i, I think there's a there's a transition there where the semi-pro model i think is a positive one because i think there's huge value in in people having a profession um and having and i think growth off the pitch 
is important for growth on the pitch. So I, I think I'm actually pro that. But going back to the point of you have to focus in on the talent that you have there in order to try and map them for performance immediately. And the effect that that's going to have from a visibility point of view on the girls that are going to watch that sport and the boys that are going to watch that sport and are going to break down the barriers of the boys that are watch that sport, they're going to think, oh, women or rugby is for women too. So all of that is really important. So the link between the visibility of the national team and the pathway is huge. So you really need to invest heavily in the in the national team. And what does that look like? So again, this is where the difference is. And Bernard, I don't think I articulated it well on Monday night, but the differences between men and women's sports is um, that yes, they're coming from a lower base. And as a result, what you focus on needs to be different now at this stage in the game, as opposed to what the, what the men's focus on. Because they've gone through academies there. They've got technically and tactically, and from the strength and conditioning point of view, they've got all of that. Whereas the women, <laughs> from a rugby knowledge point of view and a technical and tactical understanding I think that's where we've seen the biggest gain so if you think of who has coached who is the really excellent coaches that have coached the women's Irish team in the past couple of years like Ian Costello yes now coming back to Munster excellent coach technically and tactically he coached us in UL Bowes and any other involvement as just rugby players and that's why we got better if we think of Shane Moore, he would have been played with the under 20s. He coached us in 2010 for just one season, technically and tactically excellent. Steve Abood, obviously technical director, he used used that that women's team as uh, as a as a kind of a, a template, as a trial to try and um, teach us how to be clever rugby players. Really, really excellent, Simon Broughton. So those people that were really, really good technical coaches have made big gains in the women's game, and that's why Kieran Hallett, that is in the in the women's team at the moment is doing really good really good so that's where you make a lot of progress in a short period of time with your performance base and then from your pathway you're dead right like the domestic pathway needs to be really really strong the intensity of the club competition and the interpros and and and, and my reason to highlight that at the weekend was not to, to not to um to diminish the the structures that have been put in place in Ireland with the AL. I know that they've been upgraded to a degree and then COVID happened, so they haven't been able to have to put that into place, etc. But if we look at what we do have, you know, in Ireland we have a club competition and you have the interpros already. So you've got every other country, you've got New Zealand that are just about to come out with a Crusaders, a um, a Waikato Chiefs provincial setup, and it's the first time they've done that. And it's really hard to get to that point. Whereas Ireland have it already, but we just what what's its purpose? So we have these branded, brilliant teams, but the standard of them are they playing a, a different different standard than the club? Like I don't really think so. So this is where we have lots of things in Ireland, but if you actually focus on what are you trying to achieve? So we need those domestic players. We know those club players who playing at a really high intensity. So what does that need to look like from a performance point of view? It needs to have really excellent technical and tactical coaches and that is essential in the women's game because that's where you're going to make your your big gains yes training age so there's a little little piece around that this piece again here's some of the differences between men's and women's rugby and i feel like i'm talking so much i'm sorry um but like okay. the, the talent transfer piece i think we have to embrace that there are going to be lots of basketballers and footballers and hockey players that will play rugby for the next while because there's women's sport is coming from a lower base and it's younger and therefore we're going those those athletes that are capable of operating in that intensity, they're going to come from other sports at the moment. And that's okay. Now that will mean, like if you had a Tyrrell, for example, I was wondering, would she at 10 be able to manage a game? Because that's, you need to have a good level of rugby IQ. She's coming from a different sport as well and coming into 15's game. But I think that's a good example of somebody that just needs a lot of work to do it, but it is possible. Whereas that's the downfall of some player, some players from other sports that are going to come into rugby is they're going to they're going to lack those type of things and that's where they just need extra coaching so I think they're all the kind of nuances that I would that I, I think are important in this structure and then I think the point that Donald made is really key is that we're not talking about just women's rugby here we're talking about domestic rugby in Ireland um, and, and what's going on there and, and I think women's rugby in Ireland has a bad rep because we're talking about this all the time and I think it turns into white noise um, and that's not okay but I think we're not saying it because um, because just just to say it we're saying it just because we're concerned about the development of the game and we know it can be better yeah I, I just Lynn I think you explained yourself perfectly Monday night and you, you uh, double down on that there I, I don't think it's talked about too much uh, and it's not white noise. It's white noise now, this week, because they lost to France. But, it, you know, unfortunately, it won't come up again until um, uh, we play England or France again. Uh, and that's that, or we don't qualify for World Cup and it'll be a little bit in the in the news. And 
while uh, and probably us as, as as male pundits haven't actually done anything to to question or drive it as well. Um, so I, I think it's good that it's been it's been looked at, questioned uh, because unless they act like it's as I said on, the, on Monday night, I think it, like 2013 was was a, was brilliant. We had a great team, and now it's 2021, and COVID excuses the last year and a half or whatever for development uh, maybe stalling. Can we come out of this block? Can we come out of this with with a, a real joined up plan and um, where there's a sense of momentum to it so that the grassroots, and, and I agree with Donald, I think it's not just the women's here. I think the clubs are dying on their feet um, and that's that's very poor as well and, and that needs to be addressed. But the only way you're going to address it is by getting people together. Because, and I said it the other night, it's, it's not about money. It's about actually competition structures, um, feeling support, uh, development within the clubs, so they can actually create the next generation. And those, that next generation doesn't have to be performance athletes. They don't have to be playing for Ireland in the Six Nations against France. It's actually being playing on a Saturday for your club and bringing on the next generation of, of, of players, both male and female. So that's, that's the issue. And we've become unbelievably focused on performance at, at, at men's level, women's level. And as long as that's going okay, um, you know, don't question the, the the system. How dare you question the system? So we were brilliant in 2018. We, we were we, we beat everybody in 2018. The team, the, the national team, aren't doing that well at the moment. Leinster are doing well. The women's team, are, you know, I think this current crop are making massive progress. But obviously, the, the competition are are ahead of us a little bit because they've got more players. But like, let, let's actually try and make sure that the domestic game is. That's just on the performance there. Sorry to cut across you. That's key. That's a key point there, right? I just want to put them down because I wrote something down last night. I was just, you know, just having to think about this for a while and saying, why are we so focused on the performance against France, right? And why I mean that in the context of is World Rugby have recently announced the WXV series, right? Which is going to be the international competition which bridges uh, the women's game between the top nations in the country. And the qualification process for Ireland when that comes into place will be to finish third in the Six Nations. So the top three Six Nations sides, say it's this week, if it's England, France and Ireland, will progress to that world WXV competition against the likes of Canada, USA, New Zealand, whatever. So third place should be actually a pretty reasonable return for Irish rugby in the context of the current Six Nations. And losing to England and France doesn't necessarily matter all that much if we can finish third, which is beating England, Scotland and Wales and qualify for the WXV. But what have we said, right, screw the performances, Bernard. Over the next five years, our platform should be give our team as much as and our squad and the women's game, the women's game in a whole, as much chance as possible to slowly bridge the gap between where we are now and where France and England and say New Zealand or Canada are over the next few years. But the third place is our primary goal performance-wise, not beating England and France. Third place is our primary goal, but let's put in the systems in place to slowly bridge the gap over the next five years between the top two nations. How about that as a starting point? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be focused, I wouldn't be focused on third place because I think you can only squeeze the lemon you have, you know, uh, 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 as strongly as you can. So if you if you squeeze this squad uh, and put more support around them, if their if their maximum ability is is not is to be fourth, well, that's all you're going to get. But that doesn't mean like if we focus all on that on this crop, we're not we're not actually solving the issue that's going to make sure that in 2026, 27, 28, 29, Turkey, we have a chance of being you know, uh, second or first or whatever. It, 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 so I, I think the focus on being third, um, it's fine. It can obviously be a little bit of a focus, but it shouldn't take... In conjunction, with other, mm-hmm. in conjunction with other with other mechanisms to improve yes. the game, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That, that's fine. But I think the I biggest think, issue is the grassroots. Yeah, and I think... But you, there's one slight concern I have about that, and I'll address this maybe to Lynn, in terms of, um, you know, qualifying in third place. Third place would be brilliant in the Six Nations and all that. And as a consequence of that, then you end up getting into the top tier of this women's um, uh, uh, international tournament. So therefore, you will be playing against the likes of uh, the equivalent of France and England, but New Zealand and uh, Canada or the USA, who are very good at that level. Is there a danger then, Lynn, that we become the Italy of the Six Nations and that you'd go out at that level and you might end up getting a series of thumping that would put people off the game almost? Um, do you know what I mean? It's a balancing act between trying to continually uh, improve, but and of course every team benefits from playing against the best. But if you look at what happens or what has been happening to Italy over the last 
uh, five, six, seven years. They haven't won a game in the Six Nations since 2015. Um, is there a danger of being careful of what you wish for in getting into that top level of the world competition? Yeah, yeah, look, you are. Um, and I suppose the intention would be, I'd imagine the reason why the global competition was was created was because they recognized them. The Olympics was there for sevens as a pinnacle event and you know that was kind of self-fueling and then there wasn't anything there for the 15s and they recognized that tussle between from 2012 to now, whereby the, the sevens was completely taken off and they saw the success of that and they saw that, you know, the, the athletes are obviously on par with, with men and da, 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 da. and then this was the concept behind the women's 15s but a lot of the reason was because they recognized say for example in in the six nations is that france and england were the only unions that were really taking the game seriously and they weren't having any competition in their in their silo and as a result they needed to generate some form of annual competition and that's where the global comp came out of so if ireland were to be in that top tier they would struggle they would be the italy and because they're they're just not putting what's necessary in in place in order to be in that top tier so yeah they would um, and that would have a detrimental effect. Would I, do, do you think that they'd get there? They probably won't because I just think that they, that top tier are just going to keep going because like they've, they're not even near their ceiling, you know, and that's the, that's the conversation with women's sport. And that's where I, I find it interesting because I think that we look at talent and progression and we think that this is going to take a 10 year plan and so on. Just like, it's not like if you, if you invest in under 17s, under 18s players, all you need to do is put them. And um, I know COVID affects this, etc. but send them away for two, three competitions per year. Uh, in two years time, they're going to be 19. The average age of the women's game is coming down in the sevens game. The average age is 20, 19, 20. Um, so they're going to be playing on the international circuit or like Bevan is obviously only what she's 21. They're going to be, you're going to get that return in two years time. They need the representative experience. So I, and women's sport, what we've seen in the WNBA and the women's basketball, Wes, you'll know about this in America, they're taking off the women's football, obviously the what's just been signed over in the UK and that five-year deal for how many million it's go, it's going to take off and it's going to take off soon. And when it does, that's where it's going to be just un, untouchable. So I think it's, 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 you have to make a decision. You either jump on this or, or you don't. And if you don't, it's fine. And you just kind of level off that this is, you're just going to operate. Um, but if, if you do, it's, it's really going to take off. And as I said, those, those top tier teams, they're probably operating at well 40 50 percent of what's possible like the growth of the men's game has kind of leveled off hasn't it you know and then their job is to re-innovate and see well what do we turn men's sport into and how do we um how do we make that marketable whereas the, the women's game has got so much growth potential and so france and england etc are just going to keep on going and it just depends on what the other countries want to do yeah like again load of points i mean i think Donald's point was interesting about the, the the kind of competition or demand that's placed on facilities at club level. He's dead right, but equally, I think the clubs are in such turmoil and down on their knees at men, in the men's game that I, I think you're probably pushing an open door at the domestic level. Um, in terms of any club in their right mind would want to effectively double their membership um, through a strong women and girls program. It actually. Aside from anything else, it makes sense for a club financially in terms of vibrancy. Like th that's a no-brainer, and, and obviously something they should pursue. Probably where I differ a small bit is on the sevens. Um, in terms of like, there's less of a an education process to to grasp the tactical nuances of sevens than fifteens, and you're working off a base of some very good athletes coming from other sports that maybe don't have the years of rugby specific training behind them. So it's also cheaper. And it's also, if you get to a point where you're competing for an Olympic medal, let's be honest, it's a, it's, it's a higher exposure window than the, the current women's six nations is. And I would imagine it's also, if you're at a very elite level, potentially self-funding through Olympic programs, as opposed to IRFU programs. So I don't like sevens. I'm not a fan of it per, per se, but I, I, I think it was a perfectly viable decision made to prioritize sevens by the IRFU. I don't think they need to necessarily apologize for that. I think where the problem is, is that they have prioritized sevens and now said that 
the prioritization of sevens is going to be the vehicle that drives 15s. It, it, like, prioritize sevens all you want in and of itself, but don't conflate it with the 15s game necessarily to such an extent, I think, is probably the more, the more pressing point. And the last one I'd say, at the risk of being wildly unpopular, in Lynn's, Lynn's job is, is high performance director or, or soon to be job. I mean, this is, it is high performance international sports. There is reasons why you mightn't be performing to a certain level, but it is high performance. And again, I'm asking Lynn's opinion rather than making a statement. But like, is is there a certain point where a kind of constant uh, contextualization for for underperformance becomes self defeating to this particular bunch of players? We're always going on with these sound bites about, you know, professionalism's about more than a paycheck, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I'd be very interested to know are the women's national team's fitness scores on a par with the Dublin ladies footballers, for example, who are amateurs? I don't know the answer, but I'd be curious to know. Yeah. Um, like, you're right. High performance sport is definitely a business and it's it's cutthroat and definitely doesn't necessarily speak to the development. I think you can redefine it to a degree. You can say, well, like, what does performance look like or what does success look like from a performance point of view? And is it solely measured on the performance of the national team or or is it um, the result of, of creating a platform or creating rugby as a sport whereby... Um, girls are seen to be welcome within within the sport, and and does that mean that within a ten year you have more female coaches? Sorry. You're all right. You're all right. Um, <laughs> you got we're addressing more some of the problems here. That yeah, we're all we're all are. old enough. Our kids are in school. We're too old. There you are. So. So there's there's a piece around that, and um, like I, I do think, but but I I think there's a reality that women's sport is learning its feet within what does a daily training environment look like that what does high performance actually look like I came from athletics and I remember my experience when I came into rugby was I was just like oh this is interesting you know you're you're playing sport but you know you're really do we train that hard you know whereas I think if you're an individual athlete you know how like your full ownership for for your your conditioning and your 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 yo-yo test scores and your strength scores and stuff like that so i think that women's sport is still evolving into that position i think that women's rugby in ireland is still evolving into that position so i think that from that point of view i think you know there, there's an element of patience from our point of view that we need to allow the girls time to grow and develop into high performance athletes and and then perform i think where the question is is that are they being are they given the capability to be able to do that are, are the structures in place for them to be able to do that are the resources in place to be able to do that you know i think when where i get concerned is when i look to a high performance environments in the 15s game and when i look to yes it's great that they've been training for 20 weeks through covid etc you know but take that away and you know do they have weekly skill sessions by coaches in their own provinces for to develop their own skills and um, do they have those facilities from a strength and conditioning point are there regional hubs like why aren't the girls training in the academies within within munster and leinster etc and um, all of those different things that is what high performance is and you know do we have a high performance system system in Ireland but like that's that's developing in, in all of the countries but do we have a high performance system in Ireland that like truly enables the, the girls to perform at a high performance point of view so I, I think that was the point that you're making there Wes I think the sevens piece is, is an interesting point again this is a difference I see with men's and women's I think we expected the evolution of the women's sevens to follow the same as the men whereby there was just separate there's a Lego block um, where they were just separate or like, but what we haven't seen that we haven't seen that split. And what I've seen is more recently, definitely Canada, definitely New Zealand, definitely France are starting to have more of a hybrid approach to their game in line with, they haven't separated. And that's, that's because there's just not enough players to play both. Um, and we've seen the value of when the sevens goes completely elite to have your, um, your Elia Greens and your, your Kazlicks and your, um, uh, yeah, well, not even Portia Woodman because she's more hybrid. But I think what we're seeing is more of a, more of a like of a hybrid approach to countries to the women's game to the sevens and fifteens game, which I'm actually pro, and that's why I was really pro when the sevens girls came back. And I know that was COVID based, but I think the women's sport looks different from that point of view to the men's, and therefore we have to treat it 
like that as opposed to just presuming what, what works for the guys is going to work for the girls. Okay, all right. Um, well, look, Italy this weekend, there's no guarantee that Ireland are going to beat Italy, by the way. This weekend, they put, uh, I don't know, 40 points on Scotland last weekend. So um, that'll be a very stiff examination, but it'll be interesting to see, I guess, where they're at. Even if you want to break it down into England and France are so far ahead of the rest, are Ireland the best of the rest after um, this year's Six Nations? We'll find out on Saturday. It's live on RT2 television. It's also live on the radio uh, as well. Um, I want to move on if we can, guys. And when is a Rainbow Cup not a Rainbow Cup? Well, the answer is when the South African sides don't bother turning up. It's a bit like Donald uh, buying a ticket to go and see Queen at Croke Park. And then when you get into Croke Park, you're told, well, actually, Freddie Mercury hasn't turned up, but we've got Daniel O'Donnell filling in his front. <laughs> I can enjoy it. Should be, it should be a cracking concert. Uh, this is well, not I the tell it, Yeah, that's, that's the first message Lynn can take to South Africa, the provincial sides, the famous bulls, the sharks, they've been compared to Daniel O'Donnell. Jesus, that's a first, I'd say. Should be very popular if he says that, I'd say. Yeah, but look. At Daniel O'Donnell turned up, you. <laughs> Well, let's, let's be honest here. I think, to be fair, the South African sides did everything they could to try and, you know, make sure that they could participate in this competition. But let's be honest, I think we were all sceptical from the outset. Not because we didn't think South Africa, um, that their teams would be joining us up here in a Pro 16, but COVID and the difficulties and the related difficulties with the South African variant. Um, I, I could never see uh, them playing... At this point in time in the Rainbow Cup. So look, I think there was such a push on, particularly in the context of the Lions, I can imagine the South African-based Springboks who haven't played outside their country now for about 15, 16 months. Uh, I can imagine uh, Jacques Ninarbor and, and Razi Erasmus was just hoping and praying that they get an opportunity to play against some of the players that they might meet uh, in the context of the Lions. Uh, so look, I'm not overly surprised that it's not going ahead. Um, I, I, I'm a bit disappointed, obviously, but look, I, I'm probably more interested in watching. Uh, I know that we, at least we can see the, the four South African French provinces playing against each other. We can watch them on television and at least it gives us an opportunity of just assessing where they are, how good are the Bulls in comparison to Leinster. And that's, I think, that's what we would have wanted to see. But look, uh, we know that they are going to be part of the Pro 16 next season, which I think is badly needed. Uh, <clears throat> it's disappointing that it's not going to go ahead. Uh, but I must say, I would be concerned now for our own domestic, for the provinces. Um, really, at a time of the year when we've been used to over the past number of years, you're building up to Heineken semi-finals and finals. You're building up to the, the, the knockout phase of the, the Pro 14. That's all finished now. So in effect, competitive rugby for the provinces is now finished. Um, and it almost becomes a, a, a preparatory period for next season because I, I, I can imagine every province, well I know they should be uh, it's time to fast track a lot of your younger players, your academy players expose them in this competition over the next month or two of the season um, so it's disappointing from that point of view but look I, I do think it was inevitable I'd be more interested in, in maybe if we have time discussing some of the law changes that they were going yeah. to introduce yeah. into this competition because uh, some of them I think are are made for television. Uh, others, uh, I, like the sending off thing, to me is bizarre. I think you might have you might have differentiated a sending off in the tackle area as opposed to if I can go in and stand in a fella's head now and that somebody can come in and replace me in twenty minutes. It doesn't uh, it doesn't look great. You would have been sent off a lot more than you were done. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, Hey, you see what you get yellow cards for now. It's it's unbelievable. In fact, I saw it all. I'm sharper in the studs with the knife. Jesus, boy, you had to have a sharp elbow. I mean, when you see what you get a yellow. It, 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 there was an old. It was the late seventies. Uh, Scotland against France. A little ditty of um, Shawley. Gerald Shawley, the tight head prop. He laid out three different fellas and the referee went up to him the third time and said, look, you want to watch it up there? Oh, be a bit careful. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's just crazy. But anyway, um, the other thing I'd be slightly worried about, I think it looks great, the captain's, the captain's initiative and the captain's pick. The slight worry I have about that. When referees got mic'd up, the game took on a totally different level. They became celebrities within the game. Now you have this interaction that's going to happen between the captain, the TMO, the co It's almost a game within a game. And the more you take away from the basic, 
ref, uh, it's the age-old cliche. What's the best referee? The fellow who's never heard. Jeez, you yeah. can't watch a game now for 80 minutes. That's yeah. all you're listening to. So I, I would have concerns about them. Well, let's just get... Okay, let's talk about these then. I mean, like, what, what is the captain's challenge, Birch? I mean, like, what, you know... Do, Leinster go and score a try next to challenge challenge referee what are you challenging at the try or your man over there we think was what what is the captain's challenge it makes no sense to me I actually I saw it actually um, live on, on on Saturday morning the Crusaders against the Chiefs and, and uh, Crusaders were attacking uh, in the last minute trying to get a, a match winning penalty and uh, the Chiefs got a jackal turnover and uh, Scott Barrett said captain's challenge he put his hands on the ground and you know, it was going to be a massive drama because it would have been a win for the Crusaders. It would have kicked the points in the last play of the game. And in fairness, when they look back at the footage, it was there was no hands on the ground. He was just chancing his arm. <laughs> uh, in fairness, like it was a key moment. They had added the drama, but like I actually think it's 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 too much. It, it, it literally gives you know it will delay. I, I have found the use of TMOs um, and the length of time it takes for a TMO to actually finally decide or give his recommendation to the referee has has kind of got out of hand and this has actually given us two more opportunities in a game for the game to stop and get into that you know um kind of soap opera between the referee and the tmo again so yeah look at it's for tv it's it's it's, it's trying to make it more razzmatazz and exciting but you know realistically a good match it's the it's the product on the field, I you know, and the and the skill and the the physicality or or whatever, or the contest that makes me watch rugby. So, yeah, I I give it, uh, uh, and I'm sure it'll be one or two episode, one or two decisions that, you know, is proven right. The captain gets it overturned, or whatever. But I just think it's mm. slow, slow to holding down. It's, it's, is, is the definition of a good captain, no, the fellow who uses the uh, yes the the opportunity <laughs> to ask the referee at the right time. Jesus, what a captain he is! Yeah, yeah and new, the new drinking game will be see how many minutes it takes Johnny Sexton to use his captain's challenge. <laughs> the answer will be three. Yeah. But like you know, you, you couple that and that challenge. Do we need any more stop starts of the game? Absolutely not. We did the, again. The game was Fiona and I were doing on Saturday against France. The, I think the TMO, Sarah Cox, the TMO, took five minutes to come up with the most basic of decisions that could have been done in 60 seconds. And it's just infuriating with that stoppage. Then you throw into that, Wes, the red card. I know someone's being tongue in cheek, but like, you know, if you're saying that lads, uh, you know, they've only got one good player that's their out hat, whatever, a sexton type figure, go over there and somebody break his job and uh, get him off the pitch. And sure, look, we'll do our 20 minutes before half time. Sure like, it's absolute madness. Like, Strange to to wait for the competition with South African teams getting involved to bring that rule in as well, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's crazy. Look, if so, you know, if there's a blatant, uh, particularly in in regards to like you know an act of violence, I suppose for want of a better word, like the idea that you just get the twenty minutes is is, is madness. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, the captain's challenge, I wouldn't be as against. There, there might be a place for that if they learn how to use it properly. Um, and I wouldn't be confusing the two issues of TMOs taking too long in their discussions with referees with how this will play out. That's up to managing that TMO referee communication better, I think. Yeah, it's just the stoppages in the game, though, Lynn. Like, you know, I do find now, and I know the goal and the overall purpose is to get to the right decision and the correct decision. And I understand that. It's just the stoppages in play now are becoming more and more frequent and more and more prolonged as well, which just doesn't help as a spectacle either. Yeah, no, I agree. I definitely agree with uh, Bernard's point on Monday when he said that, like, I really buy into, although I'm frustrated as a player and as a supporter to watch it when you see high tackles and people being yellow carded because of high tackles and the game changing, but I understand the safety element and I buy into that, whereas I don't probably understand what, 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 what this is about. I'm always interested, where did this come from? It was obviously a concept and idea, but there's, you know, there's committees and there's people that talk about it and athletes commissions that discuss it and how did they get to this point so I probably don't fully understand the rationale behind it to be able to back it and, and I don't think I'm massively a fan of it either what's the birch what's the rule of it they've been held up is it it's a it's a it's a drop out from the goal line is it for the yeah so basically you know uh it's actually going to be fascinating tactically because it's become nearly impossible to stop those teams who get into that pick and go game and worst case scenario they drive over the line and get held up. They re they now restart with a five meter scrum and it just start the process again. Yeah. And whereas now, if you can actually hold them up over the line, it's like a choke tackle. Uh, so it's effectively a turnover. But instead of being a scrum, it's going to be a a twenty two dropout. So I would say coaches will will try and actually get underneath the attacking 
team and swamp that so the ball can't be put down. Uh, so effectively, you're, it, it's going to be a game of cat and mouse because when you're doing your pick and goes, you're only going to go for the line when you're actually 100% sure. Yeah. Um, so we could have this kind of, even uh, the attacking team taking the maximum amount of time trying to make sure that there's no chance they can be held up. Um, she might delay the game, but the, the other side of it is you're probably not going to get 20 phases where you know, hmm. they haven't got held up. So that's it, 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 that, should, that might actually help. But I mean, the other side of that is the game of rugby was about getting position, getting down there and having the skill set and power to be able to turn that position into points. Whereas the laws now have actually said, well, that's not really important to us. We, we just want like hmm. to go back the other side of the field pretty quickly. So it, it's taken away what's been always a big part of strategy and strength in rugby. Uh, they're trying to negate that. But there, isn't it, Bert? It's, it's, it's the law of intended consequences and things like this and that you're now going to have a, a specific part of your training. Just think about this for a second now, where you will be concentrating on what happens in the five metres between, you know, the five metres to the goal line. How do we defend this? You'll have three fellas looking to drag a fellow over the line with him and hold him up over the line. Likewise, over the last 12 months, we've had the opposition concentrating on their pick and drives and how they get people and bodies ahead of the ball. And a lot of it is illegal. You can't be ahead of the ball. You can't grasp onto a player who doesn't have the ball. So, I mean, there, there's aspects of the game as well that aren't being refereed according to the law. Yeah. And as a spectacle, it is awful. You've seen like five, ten minutes of this pick and jam, defending, scrum, go back, you go through the same thing again. And and again, I go back to the TMO, and, and Hugh will know this. I remember... Uh, how many times have I said it in commentary, where you get an early picture that shows you the, the, the player is held up over the line. And yet we go through uh, another two or three minutes of looking at it from a whole load of different angles to eventually come back to the original one. I brought this up at um, one of the conferences we had before the last World Cup when you get an opportunity to talk to World Rugby. And I, I spoke about this to Nigel Owens and he said, look, I couldn't agree with you more, he said. But it's out of our control. It's the producers in the van who are trying to create this drama around the try, no try. Yeah. So he says, you know, even in our scenario, we can see early on that the player was held up. So therefore, no try. But yet the producer keeps producing all these pictures to add a little bit more drama. So look, <laughs> um, they're, they're all things that have become games within the game. And, uh, you know, we've had games that have lasted 100 minutes. I mean... It's crazy. But anyway, look, we'll, we'll see where it all... All this is coming from the Southern Hemisphere. It's keep the fans, keep them excited. Yeah. Uh, but you're, you're moving away from the, 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 the main structures of the game. Yeah. Um, listen, guys, we're just out of time. Uh, didn't get a chance to talk about Eddie Jones, but we will next week. He uh, has the full support of the RFU heading into the next World Cup cycle. So Eddie Jones is here to stay, which I, for one, think is an absolutely fantastic thing. And we get to hear lots more of him. Even if the English players are dead sick of him, we don't really care. Um, Lynn, listen, you might uh, have us down to the one-year wedding anniversary down by the wharf in Cape Town next year. The four of us are pack our bags and ready to travel if we get the invite. So just make sure you, you don't leave us out next time. Is that all right? Yes, definitely open the door. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, Lynn, from having the last time I heard you was in a in the coach in Yokohama on the World Cup on the <laughs> microphone. I think it's, it's your daughter. She's a way better voice than you have. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't too hard. Anyway, Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to Wes, to Donald and to Vernon as well. We're back next week. Enjoy the Ireland Italy game this weekend. Hopefully it's a more positive result. Talk to you then.